0: This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Well, it's nice to be back, and nice to see you all here. I heard that the series has been fabulous, so special thanks to Jennifer for putting it together and giving me the honor of giving the last talk in the series. So this is the Living Wisely in the World series. And I I wanted to speak about feelings, feelings, emotions, decision-making. And I think feelings and emotions can be rather seductive, especially if we're not mindful of them. If we're not aware of how we're feeling, then that feeling can kind of, in an unconscious way, propel us into action. They can seem so personal, my feelings, my emotions, like they're real, like they really exist and are compelling. And sometimes people think that they shouldn't even be questioned. I've heard many people say that this is how I feel. This is my truth. You know, this is my authentic response. My reality. But are feelings really a reality? Are they really true? Are they reliable? Are they trustworthy? Buddhist psychology in Abhidhamma tells us that feelings are nothing more than Conditioned experiences, and they are not a basis upon which to make a decision. As simple as that. It's just conditioned qualities of mind occurring in the present moment, but are not the reason for making a decision. And there are many discourses in which the Buddha taught disciples to investigate. And what do we investigate? Very often what we investigate are our feelings. We investigate our mental states. We investigate the quality of the mind. We don't necessarily act on our feelings or act on whatever mental states arise. But many people are very strongly influenced by feelings and emotions. When feelings are pleasant, the response very often moves the mind towards craving, towards grasping, towards attachment, towards wanting more. And when feelings are unpleasant, the response is one of aversion, not liking, withdrawing, or aggression. Perhaps feelings simply should not be kind of taken at face value, but should be understood and investigated. Before going further, I probably should make a distinction between feelings and emotions. The emotions and mental are just a more contemporary term for mental state. In the suttas, we don't find any terms translated as emotions. And when the term feeling is used, it's usually referring to what's called vedana, which is the hedonic tone of experience, the affective quality, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, or that quality that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant and this is a quality of feeling we could say that arises in any moment of contact that can be sensory contact it could be bodily contact it could be contact with a mental object contact with a thought or a memory We don't control whether the feeling that's arising now, the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of our present experience, we don't control that feeling that's occurring now. It's understood that the feeling that's arising now is arising because there were conditions in the past moments to give rise to this feeling right now. It's not under our control. With each moment of contact, there is a feeling. And it's known by a mind state. It's known within a mind state. It's not like feeling is out there and contact is somewhere else and a mind is somewhere else. These come together in an experience of knowing. And so there's a quality of mind that's arising in conjunction with every experience. And sometimes those mind states are wholesome and beautiful, states of compassion and generosity and gratitude and benevolence and concentration and calmness. And they'll all have a character, a set, we could say, of mental factors that compose that state. And we learn to recognize them. We learn to recognize the quality of mindfulness, of faith, of wisdom, of uprightness, of equanimity, of self-respect, of tranquility. And these arise in wholesome states. And we know them. We recognize them. We also learn to recognize those unwholesome states. Because unless you are already perfectly enlightened, you probably have some and their states of mind that are associated with lust or greed with envy or restlessness with anger or hate impatience possessiveness wrong view delusion craving conceit arrogance or perhaps a willingness to do harm cruelty mental states are affected by the quality of attention that we give to an object, to give to what we're observing in the present moment. So this whole interaction of something being known with a quality of mind and a feeling in a moment of contact that all comes together is what we examine in meditation. We're not just sitting here trying to relax the mind and calm the mind. We're looking to see how we meet experience. And can we meet experience with wise attention? The traditional teachings use this term mental state, but it includes many different things. It includes wholesome states and unwholesome states. It includes calm states, like we might say a state of tranquility or of equanimity. And it also includes unwholesome states and afflictive emotions. Our emotions may be conditioned by the past, but how we relate to them and the quality of attention that we bring to them, such as whether or not it's wise or unwise attention, mindfulness or a lack of mindfulness, delusion or wisdom, all of that's going to affect the type of experience that we have, the way that we engage with that experience, and therefore what it conditions in the next moment. Because our feelings are changing, our mental states are changing, our emotions are changing, our perceptions are changing. Nothing is fixed, nothing is solid, everything is dynamic. So though we cannot control the experience that we're having, actually we can do something that might shift the conditions to give rise to perhaps a different experience in the next moment. Some people react very strongly to certain stimuli. Maybe somebody walks by a bakery and, and it stimulates a desire to eat. And maybe somebody who is maybe particularly vulnerable to alcohol walks by a bar and it might stimulate the desire to, to drink. Or somebody who's not so long ago given up smoking smells cigarette smoke and that desire is stimulated. We might realize that there are certain things that trigger our emotional responses. And then once those emotional responses arise, they can affect our actions. So how do we Change our habits, then. How do we affect our conditioning? One of the things we do in meditation practice is we learn restraint. We're sitting here quietly. We're learning to restrain the mind. We're learning to let it have an experience be known without acting on it have a sensation occur without proliferating a story about it. We're learning to bring mindfulness and wisdom to the encounter. And very often, we are just allowing the mind to meet experience, to create a kind of pause between the stimulus and the reaction that takes a decision and moves into action. This can be very helpful for learning to be with our experience and know the feeling mindfully before we take action. So meditative training brings this mindful attention to whatever is occurring, a pleasant experience, a painful experience, or a neutral experience. Once we're mindful of the feelings, then we can Begin to notice what are those feelings and how do we respond to them. Do we invariably have to respond with desire to a pleasant experience and aversion to an unpleasant experience? Can mindful attention produce a more skillful way of responding to the various pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences that occur throughout a day? How can we use mindfulness to inhibit those habitual reactions and impulses so that we can really put a kind of wedge into that reactivity, that tendency to react and open a space for calmness and for clarity to come in so that there can be a pause, a a moment of mindfulness, a moment of recognition, A moment to reflect so that before we take action, we can consider the consequences. We can consider where it's going to lead and whether that's where we want to go. Decision-making for many people is a real struggle. It can be very difficult to, to try to assess and determine what it is we want, what it is we feel, what would be the best course of action in any particular situation. And certainly awareness of our desires and our aims and our intentions and our feelings are all important parts of mindful decision-making. But very often, we also need to have a moment of calmness, not only the mindfulness and the action, but a little space to let the mind rest, to get in touch with what's most important to us. Because if we too easily triggered, then those habitual reactions can very quickly move us into habitual behaviors. And we might lose touch with deeper goals, with subtler aspirations. Often when people come to retreats, they disclosed to me that they've come because, or one of their goals for being on the retreat is to make a decision. You know, they want to decide what they want to do with this part of their life or with this issue at work or how they're going to handle this situation or what they're going to do when they retire or what uh, they're in a transition and they want to decide what is going to come next. And they come to a retreat partly because often there's an, a sense of uncertainty, so it seems like, okay, I might as well meditate on it, right? Why not? But it's actually interesting thing to do, partly because when we calm the mind in a retreat and let go of agitation, things often do become clear. It often is easier to make a decision. Because we're cultivating very wholesome states, states of equanimity and mindfulness, of concentration and restraint. We're getting in touch with our profoundest goals. We're starting to see things not so desperately in terms of what I feel compelled to do because we're not really doing anything when we're on a retreat. We're sitting and walking and breathing and that's about all. So when we're not compelled to have to accomplish everything and get things decided and done and checked off our list then we're able to be have sense a bigger picture of our lives and realize that the flow of pleasant and unpleasant experience occurs within a much bigger picture and we're not necessarily compelled to act on any of it this equanimity can bring great clarity that can arise in the silence of retreat it's also helpful sometimes because people, when they go on retreat, they've left a lot of the pressures that were pushing them into one particular direction. They've left the pressures that they feel in their social environment or in their family or in their workplace, and they've left the particular habitual triggers of their lives so they have a chance to get in touch with what, you know, may- maybe matters the most to them. And on retreat, there's just not so much of the social conditioning of you should be like this or you shouldn't do that. On a retreat, we're restrained enough by the precepts, by the simple environment, by the practice of mindfulness. And that's enough to often suspend the habitual reactions to pleasant and unpleasant stimuli, which opens up this space for a wise choice to occur. So meditation can shift our perspective from the intensity of our personal narrow reactions where the tendency very often is to maximize personal pleasure and avoid all pain. And it opens us to a kind of wiser and broader and vaster dynamic of conditions that includes seeing the causes and effects of things, that includes seeing a sort of the dynamic processes and the changing nature of things. And so although many people do come to retreats, intending to make a decision and it can be a very helpful place to get into touch be in touch with what's most important to us i really think most worldly decisions should be made in the contexts of the relationships that they affect and of the contexts that we live in that work decisions and family decisions shouldn't really be made in an artificial retreat environment. And so although in retreat, it can be helpful to reflect on our priorities. I often tell people, don't make a decision in the retreat, and don't make a decision even within a week or two after the retreat. If you've come to some natural decision still sleep on it for at least a week before you say it out loud because sometimes people come to these like realizations that they want to get married or they want to get divorced or they want to move or they want to buy a house or they want to join a monastic order and shave their head and give up their life as they know it or their organized life or they want to quit their job or make all kinds of worldly decisions that really should be made in consultation with the people that they most affect. I think this kind of thing happens probably on every retreat. That a few people are hoping to come to some real clarity about what they want to do in their lives. This happens a lot when I teach in Israel because the average age is much younger. It's mid-20s in many of the retreats that I teach in Israel. It's just the nature of that population and that community. Although they do span all the ages from 87 to about 16, nevertheless, the average ends up being there's a lot of people in in their mid to late 20s, which is a time when many people are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. So meeting after meeting after meeting, they're asking me what they should do with their lives. (laughs) I've got no clue what they should do with their lives. (laughs) It's a challenge just to figure out what I want to do with my life. (laughs) But whether they should get married or whether they should take a job or whether they should go off to Asia or whether they should do this or that, who knows? And sometimes when people go into a a retreat environment and try and make a decision like that, the influence of the retreat environment is very strong. The primacy of the spiritual life. So sometimes people get over-enthusiastic about shaving their head and going off to some kind of, of a monastic setting. But usually that cools pretty quickly if they just sleep on it for a few days or a week. And then it, it might be the right decision. Many decisions that we make in retreat, they might be right. And I think if we sleep on them, then we'll know. Sometimes we can use, just as people go into retreats sometimes like that, sometimes people, when they sit in meditation in their daily practice, instead of just observing the flow of changing experience, there's a hidden agenda. There's a a kind of a hoping to get clarity about something, something specific. So many times we make decisions, we make choices. Maybe it's more like we kind of blunder through life, making a choice this way or that way, and then having to accept whatever the consequences were of that, and then trying to get out of the worst of it by making another decision and then accepting the consequences of that and just kind of plodding along, blundering through our lives. For most of the choices we make in a day, there's really nothing that's right or wrong. Every once in a while, there will be. Every once in a while, we'll know that there's something that is really appropriate, suitable, ethical, deep, and is somehow really calling to us in a very clear way. But very often we make decisions and we're not even sure necessarily what we based those decisions on. Did we just base it upon habit? Did we base it upon social expectation? Did we base it on Subtle desire and aversion. How many decisions do we base upon defilements? Like desire and aversion. Are we compulsively moving toward the pleasant? And trying to get less unpleasant experiences in our lives? Is that the basis of our decision making? You probably don't think you'll be happy if you can make everything pleasant. I think you've come to this room, so you already have some level of wisdom, but sometimes there can be this underlying sense that, well, if I could just tip the scales a little bit so that most of the things are on the pleasant side and less are on the unpleasant side, then I'll be happy. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to want to tip the scales in our lives. Sure, if you have a choice between a painful experience and a pleasant experience and they're both going in the direction you want to go, I'd take the pleasant route. Why not? But I don't think we should delude ourselves to think that happiness is going to come by cramming a lot of pleasant experiences right back to back. The intensity of feeling, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of our experience is an important thing to look at when we're making any decisions or choices. You all are probably familiar with Pavlov dogs thing where they they rung a bell and gave the dog food and then they just rung the bell without having the food and the dog salivated anyway. And, okay, so there's a reward and we are conditioned to get a reward, and we're conditioned to want that, you know, to move toward that. And so there's a stimulus that makes us think we're going to get something that we want, and we move toward it. I remember my childhood dog, whenever we used the can opener, wherever it was, <laughs> it would come running because it would think, wet food day. <laughs> And you might have a cat that knows the sound of their little favorite treat container being opened. You know, rats and mice are pretty good at going through very complicated mazes just for the promise of some pleasant reward. And fishermen use this. They put some little dangling hook with uh, some treat and bait on it, and some fish comes along and bites it. In some ways, maybe human beings are not so different. But we have a remarkable capacity to make that pause, to inhibit the conditioned response, so that we have a chance to, instead of just move towards the pleasant, we have a chance to decide if we really want to bite that hook. We can use our intelligence to intervene in those conditioned responses so that we don't just blindly react to pleasure and pain. We can recognize that sometimes there is a danger, not only in pain, but also in pleasure. We can recognize that the hook is baited. And we can choose I think I'm not going to bite that one. I think I'm not going to grasp that one. Even if it's tantalizing, even if it promises pleasure, we can decide, I'm not going to do that. And I think this capacity to see how the hook is baited and to see that there's the hook sometimes behind the bait is a very important thing in making decisions. And we can support this capacity by recognizing the feeling and bringing mindfulness to the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, and the neutrality of various feelings that we have. You might be sitting and feeling an itch or some subtle discomfort. And very often, we habitually move to scratch the itch. If some little Something is there, we just want to like make it go away. And so we just brush it off, or we scratch it, or we rub it, or we do something. But if that occurs when we're meditating, then very often we can choose not to scratch it, not to move. I don't encourage people to make big, long vows to sit unmoving for an hour at a time. But I do encourage people to make a vow to not scratch the itch on the first impulse. (laughs) To first see the itch, feel its unpleasantness, observe it changing. Sense the impulse to scratch arise and don't move. Let it fall away. And see the feelings around it changing. Notice if another impulse arises to scratch it or not. And wait for three impulses and only on the fourth. Do you allow your hand to just go and scratch it or move it? Similar for hot and cold. If you ever meditate outside, sometimes it's hot. Five seconds later, it's cold. Then two seconds later, it's hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold. You can be putting on and off your shawl all the time. So you just notice. Unpleasant, pleasant, heat, cold. And then put on your shawl. And then take it off. But again, wait for three or four impulses so that you see the experiences and don't just react to the first impulse. So I think it can be very helpful to learn to watch the urges arise and know that we don't have to act on them. We still give ourselves the permission to act on them, but not immediately. This kind of work in meditation where we just observe the changing nature of feeling without acting, without reacting, helps uh, sever that link between the conditioned tendency to grasp the pleasure and avoid the pain or grasp the pleasure and get angry at the pain. When feelings and emotions are really strong, it can be so helpful to know that we don't have to act or react we don't have to speak based on the feeling we don't have to do anything we might choose to do something but we don't have to not doing and restraint is always an option It's not always easy to practice restraints, especially if we're identified with our personal feelings, if we're identified as being the person who deserves this feeling or expects that feeling or the person who is sad or happy or depressed or ecstatic if we solidify a sense of being the person who is having this emotion, who is owning this experience, who is hopeful, who is grateful, who is despairing, then all that attachment with self is going to fill in that gap or fill in that space that could, if we let that space open with mindfulness, could allow us to simply pause, have restraint, and reflection before acting. When self is grasping experience, when there's a sense of self grasping in a moment of contact, in a moment of experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, then the the reaction is going to be quick because we're going to feel immediately threatened because we're taking it all very personally. But feelings and mental states, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's about being happy or sad or frightened or confident, it's not who and what we are. They're simply momentary changing feelings. And when we do observe a sensation being pleasant and then unpleasant, when we do observe an an itch coming and going without needing to act on it, when we do see that our reactions and responses of desire and aversion change all the time, that our emotions are changing, happy or sad, throughout a day, throughout a minute, throughout a brief finger snap, they just arise and pass away due to causes and conditions, then we'll realize we don't have to make our choices based upon those changing emotional conditions. We don't have to make our decisions based upon pleasant and unpleasant feeling. In the Greater Discourse on the Way to Undertaking Things, a discourse in the Middle Ink Discourses, the Buddha teaches his disciples to reflect on, not on the feeling that is happening, but on the potential consequences of an action. He says it's essential to examine where this potential action is likely to take us, is likely to lead. What are the consequences going to be? And to do this, we have to look to see Where is the gratification? What are we wanting out of it? Are we trying to get pleasure? Are we trying to avoid pain? Can we ask ourselves, can I just be with this feeling? Do I have the capacity to feel it, to be with it, and to reflect calmly and wisely? And so in our Meditation practice, we develop restraint and we develop renunciation, the capacity to let go. We develop patience and wise attention. We learn to abandon unwholesome states that weaken our resolves and we cultivate wholesome states that support and nurture our profoundest values. In the Middle Ink Discourses, the Buddha used a simile of four drinks, and he asked his disciples to consider the consequences of drinking each one. One is bitter, tastes really bad, and it's mixed with a deadly poison. Would you drink it? Another one is sweet, appealing, delicious, and it's also mixed with a deadly poison. Would you drink it? Another one is very bitter, nasty, vile taste. And it's mixed with a healing medicine. And another one is sweet and appealing, very delicious. And it's mixed with a healing medicine. A wise person is not going to decide which drink to drink based upon the taste of it, whether it's bitter or whether it's sweet. A wise person is going to consider the consequences and choose the drinks that are mixed with the healing medicine and not the deadly poison. And it's not going to matter whether it tastes bitter or it tastes sweet. Some experiences are going to be painful in life. And they might also lead to unwholesome, painful Experiences and consequences that lead to harm. Some experiences are going to be pleasant, lovely, joyful, and also lead to a lot of harm. And some experiences are going to be painful, but lead to wonderful, wholesome, virtuous qualities. And some are going to be pleasant and also lead to very virtuous, wholesome states. And of course, we'd all like them to just be pleasant and lead to the good things. But that's not the nature of life. Wise actions and decisions are not going to come based upon the momentary feelings. They're going to be based upon this wise reflection that we're able to do, we're able to reflect when we learn to put a pause in our experience, when we learn enough restraint that we can be with the feelings, painful or pleasant, without immediately acting. It may sound harsh, but it really doesn't matter. It makes no difference if our feelings are pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't matter how something feels. What's more important is, where does it lead? Is it going to support our aims? Is it going to support our values in life? Is it going to lead to wholesome states? So when we're faced with a seductive trigger, maybe it's a flowerless chocolate cake. then desire might flood our (laughs) minds. Is mindfulness lost? Is mindfulness remote? Maybe we could bring in just a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of reflection, and make a choice. This inability to recognize that we're making a choice is especially strong when there's a strong compulsion or an addiction. We feel like we don't have a choice. The craving just takes us right into the action. And when we're just triggered right into an action, it feels like we might be like a slave and not have control over what we do, not have control over the choices that we make because we have become a slave to our own desires, to our own habits, to our own aversions. But by cultivating mindfulness, by cultivating restraint, by cultivating patience, by being willing to be with the pleasure and the pain in life, we develop many wholesome qualities that create the conditions that enable us to recognize when craving has arisen, when aversion has arisen, and when wholesome states like wisdom and clarity and peace have arisen. And so we're able to replace craving with wise reflection and mindfulness. We develop the ability to override conditioned impulses, and we give ourselves the option to make a non-habitual choice. So Buddhist teachings ask us to not rush in and make a lot of decisions and actions all really fast and powerfully. Instead, to consider our response. Is our response based upon desire or fear? Are we reacting based on conditioned reactions? How strong is the delusion of self-interest and identification? Or is this an okay thing to do? Is the context appropriate? Is it suitable? Reflective wisdom then becomes our basis for decision-making rather than just a reaction to pleasant or unpleasant feeling. And it's through this gradual increase of wise decisions that we begin to increase our freedom to respond freely, and not as a slave to desire and aversion. In the Vedana Samyutta it says, Bhikkhus, there are these three feelings. What three? Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neither pleasant nor painful feeling. When one has seen pleasant feeling as painful, painful feeling as a dart, and neither painful nor pleasant feeling as impermanent, one is called one who sees rightly, has cut off cravings, severed the fetters, and by completely breaking through conceit has made an end to suffering. And so when we see pleasant feeling, even in the pleasant feeling we can see that as painful. Just simply because pleasant feeling doesn't have the capacity to provide lasting pleasure, lasting happiness. Painful feeling is seen as a dart. It's seen as an affliction. Well, that might be obvious. And neither pleasant nor painful feeling is seen as impermanent. It's not lasting peace. It may appear calm, but it's not lasting peace. It's impermanent. It changes. And so we investigate our relationship to feeling, and we understand that all feelings are impermanent, They're unsatisfactory because even the best ones can't provide lasting happiness and none of them are worth identifying with. Hence, regarding all feelings, the Buddha gave one overarching bit of advice. He said, do not cling.